All right, welcome back. This is the capsule on the case of Alberta um, v. Cunningham. So where are we, right? We're back to this framework of analysis under subsection 15.2, right? So you'll recall we spent most of our time last, um, the last week and um, for the past two sessions as well on 15.1, right? So there's these two subsections under um, section 15 of the Canadian Charter, right? 15.1 is about, um, about um, preventing discrimination kind of positively, right? So to, to prevent the government from doing things that are discriminatory, and that's all based on this framework that we've discussed multiple times of substantive inequality, right? So we don't want the guarantee of equality and non-discrimination to be construed as a limit on how the government can combat existing discrimination. And therefore we have subsection 15.2, which is about ameliorative programs, right? So programs that seek to proactively combat discrimination and therefore that we allow. So programs where the government is doing something that is ostensibly or actually discriminatory and therefore it might infringe upon 15.1 but we allow it to be because we think that that discrimination is good, right? that it's positive, that it's further as that goal of substantive inequality in the same way as the guarantee that we find in 15.1. So this is a case under 15.2 of the Charter, right, on appeal from the Court of Appeal for Alberta, relatively recent case, 2011, and we have once again a Supreme Court that's unanimous, right, so as we said, that really sends messages, right, for the Supreme Court to be, in, to be unanimous on, um, on a very significant issue like that, sends a message about the state of the law and the importance of the underlying principles. So, again, we have something with indigenous peoples, quite similar to what we had relatively recently. So section 35 of the Constitution recognizes various rights for indigenous peoples. I said that before, right? So not the charter, but the Constitution. Of course, the charter is part of the Constitution, but the recognition of Aboriginal rights is not part of the Charter. So it's not right, a specific set of rights that we find in the Charter. Instead, it's a recognition in the Constitution itself. Section 35 says, we hereby recognize pre-existing Aboriginal rights. So that might be right, various rights that were exercised by Aboriginal peoples, generally at the time the settlers came. So things having to do often with right, fishing or hunting or various rights having to do with land, occupying land, right, doing various things with land. And therefore, as a result of that recognition in section 35 of the Constitution, these rights acquire constitutional status, right? So basically, right, these rights have a power that's more significant than the rights that we find in other that we find in other laws, and therefore they can serve to invalidate other legislation from the government. So, if a government passes a right, it infringes upon that Aboriginal right to say fish by, by virtue of its constitutional status. That right can serve to invalidate something else. 
And that recognizes, right, a certain um, set of peoples. Obviously, the definition of indigenous peoples is somewhat limited, right? It's not uh, enough for someone to self-identify as an indigenous person. And you're told that that extends to um, groups that are, that are branded as Indians. Um, this is still how federal law um, labels them, right? So the Indian Act is the law, the federal law by virtue of which um, the vast majority of, of, of Aboriginal rights are um, recognized in positive law, right? So if you see we have that constitutional recognition of pre-existing rights, but various rights that are given to Aboriginal peoples, right? For instance, having to do with taxation, access to health services, whatever it is, right? It's all by virtue of what we call the Indian Act. So the taxonomy there still exists, right? So for someone to qualify under the Indian Act, they have to be an Indian and they have to be part of a band, right? And therefore, Section 35, you're told, recognizes the rights of specific Aboriginal peoples, specifically Indians, in the sense I've just, um, I've just expanded upon, Métis people, which we'll look at in great detail, and the Inuit, right? So what happens there, right? Alberta does something um, that ostensibly seeks to further protect the rights of the Métis people. That's significant because the Métis, this is kind of a long constitutional story there, but it's been hard for them to gain recognition, right? So there's this very um, significant underlying idea, at least in federal law, that people have to be real Indians and that somehow, right, it's a big risk for people to be fake Indians. And so we see all sorts of things having to do with who you can marry, who you can't marry, what percentage of your blood qualifies you as an Indian, what percentage of your blood stops qualifying you as an Indian, right? And historically, we had various things that were struck down, having to do as well with how it's passed down from generation to generation. So children of people in various um, situations had differing rights, and oftentimes it's been found to be not constitutional. But the Métis have always had issues qualifying because right, by virtue of their status there, they are a mixed race, right? Initially, they were people who um, who had um, children with um, settlers and therefore, right, developed a different cultural and physical identity than what we call Indians generally under the Indian Act. And as a result of that, they've had trouble to safeguard that identity because federal laws often looked upon them as fake Indians, right, as, as people who were mixed race and therefore did not have their own distinctive culture that was worthy of protecting. Eventually, right, common sense made its way and there was recognition pursuant to section 35 of the Constitution. But as I said, that was not always the case. So what happens there, right, Alberta passes a law, quite interestingly, right, it seems Alberta is often in our cases, you'll see um, I think um, two weeks from now, Alberta tried to argue that discrimination against um, homosexuals is appropriate, right? So um, lots of things having to do with Alberta, right? Alberta at this time does something ostensibly good, passes a specific law 
to give specific privileges to the Métis people. At least that's the theory of the government of Alberta when they go to the Supreme Court, and ultimately this is theory that's adopted by the Supreme Court. But if you register under that law, right, you no longer have access to whatever the privileges are under the Indian Act. So the Indian Act ultimately applies to the Métis people because they're considered Aboriginal people in the Constitution. So three groups, Indians, Inuits, and Métis. And the Indian Act is a federal law that offers benefits in part due to that constitutional recognition, but not fully, to people who are labeled as Aboriginal in Canada in some way, and therefore, who can get benefits under the Indian Act? These three same groups of people. And so, again, as I said, it wasn't always the case. When the Métis people eventually got recognition, they got the benefits under the Indian Act. But this Alberta law says, if you try to get benefit under this law, specifically having to do with the specific facts are not important, right? It has to do with settlements, right? To give them land and also self-governance rights on their land. That was a big part of the constitutional recognition as well, right? To give people a constitutionalized right often prevents other people from violating it. And to a large extent, it's a recognition of self-governance, right? It's a recognition that the Aboriginal people is at least in part sovereign in a way similar to the way the Canadian government is sovereign and in a way that other um, private individuals may not be. So Alberta passes this law, but to get benefits under this law, you cannot be registered under the Indian Act. So in other words, right, you cannot get benefits under both laws. And Alberta says that's the very purpose of it. Alberta says, right, we passed this law when the Métis people were added as recognized Aboriginal peoples in Canada because we recognized that historical disadvantage. And it's been particularly true, Manitoba and westward, right? And therefore, Alberta's passed this law after the recognition to say we got things wrong and therefore we want to recognize their status and indirectly also recognize their right to self-governance. But Alberta said, right, this is kind of a, an additive regime, but one that, that does some of the same things as, as the Indian Act, and therefore we don't want people to register under both laws and get both. And so, if you are registered under the Indian Act, you cannot get benefits under this law. And conversely, if you do get benefits under this law and ultimately you choose to register under the Indian Act, you lose the benefits, generally having to do with the settlement, right? So you lose that right. And they're, they're careful to say it's not to be expelled, right? So you don't get expelled from the settlement. It might've been more of a problem, but you lose that property, right? Which you get by virtue of the act. So if you get a property right on the settlement, right? By virtue of the act, you lose that if you register under the Indian Act.
And the plaintiffs in this case do basically just that, right? So they register under the Indian Act, specifically you're told to get medical benefits. And therefore, their, they, their, their status, um, their membership in the settlement is revoked pursuant to that law. And they argue that, of course, it violates their constitutional rights. It's the purpose of the course. It's generally why people go to the Supreme Court, right? What do they say? Right, Section 2, again, similarly to what we said earlier, right? Um, the people generally invoke uh, more than one constitutional right because um, more likely to win, right? So first, Section 2. Section 2 is the right of freedom of expression. That includes, among other things, also religion. That also includes your right of what we call, <coughs> sorry, freedom of association. One of the way you express yourself is by being part of a group that expresses itself, right? Same way as you do in a protest, in a march, right? They, they allege that it violates the right of freedom of association, the right to, um, to coalesce as um, a settlement. Second, seven, you'll recall seven is your right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right not to be deprived therefrom except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, right? Generally, that's life. So generally, when the government unduly puts your life at risk, that is not constitutional. Here, they're talking about liberty. This often, for obvious reasons, a much more, um, a, a much more difficult constitutional argument to make, but I'll argue that that violates the right to liberty. Probably not as obvious as perhaps someone being put in jail, which might be the more obvious limitation of the right to liberty. Third, section 15, the right to equality and to be, to be free from discrimination. And as we'll see, that's what the court rules upon. So what happens below? The trial judge dismisses the claim. Trial judge says this is not a violation of their constitutional rights. Then on appeal, they change their mind. So on appeal, they say it is a violation of Section 15 of the Charter, so that right to equality and to be free from discrimination. And the Supreme Court um, reverses that again, agrees with the trial judge. So this is ruled upon under 15. And the Supreme Court says, no, this is not unconstitutional discrimination pursuant to Section 15. Why is that? because of section 15.2. The court finds to the extent that there is discrimination, and here, of course there is, right? There's discrimination based on an enumerated or analogous ground. What's discrimination, you ask, right? We looked at that a number of times, a distinction that is discriminatory. So first you have to be treated differently. Second, it has to be discriminatory. We looked at the indicia of that, right? So it plays into a stereotype, prevents you from having full access to Canadian society. It violates your human dignity as a person, so on and so forth, right? It's discrimination. And on top of that, there's a kind of third thing you need, whether you put it under one or two, and that is for it to be under an enumerated or analogous ground, something in the list of things you can discriminate upon or something similar. Well, here, of course, 
that's discrimination either based on race or on the analogous status of being an Indian pursuant to the Indian Act. And even though it looks very, very confusing there, the court does not find either way. So first, the court doesn't say that being a status Indian is an analogous grounds. The court does not say for presidential value, for future cases, that that's an analogous ground. Because you'll recall what I said on analogous grounds, and that is that once it's been proven, you don't have to prove it again. So when someone has shown that, it, say, being a status Indian is an analogous ground, no one needs to show that again. For future cases, you still have to show discrimination on that ground, but you don't have to show that the ground is analogous. It's as if it were written in the list as one of the things that potentially you can discriminate on. The court doesn't say that status under the Indian Act is such a thing. The court doesn't say either that it's discrimination based on race. The court basically says, right, it wasn't contested. So the trial judge assumed that there was discrimination in, on, a, on a seemingly analogous ground. And since that wasn't contested, we don't rule on it. And so future cases for presidential value is not found to be an analogous ground. But the court says it is justified under 15.2. So it is discrimination. It's a distinction, right? So we move to 15.2. That's the test. That's what the court says, as we'll see. Court says, first, we look at whether there's a distinction that's discriminatory, right? So first, we look at 15.1. So the government can't just come in and say, well, it's good, so we won't do a discrimination analysis. It's not the steps that we have to go through. First, we consider whether there's discrimination, whether there's a distinction, right? Discriminatory. And second, the government can defend it. But the government can come in and do a 15-2 analysis first. And the court finds that it is safe under 15-2 because it has an ameliorative purpose. And the court uses very strong language there. You'll see the court is absolutely convinced that it is indeed um, something that should be saved under 15.2. So we'll see the language is very strong. And that's because the court characterizes the law as providing additional benefits. So in the event that, right, the court had interpreted the law, and this is not all that important, but in the event that the court had interpreted the law as, right, providing something to the cost of something else. So providing something, but not really doing it and taking something away, then that might have been a problem, but that's not what the court says. The court basically just says, this is better. This is, we're providing um, the Métis people with something great, and therefore, right, that's exactly what 15.2 is there for. The court interprets this as this, a law that's there to help people and that distinction of um, taking away status under the Indian Act is significantly downplayed because that would have been the constitutional hurdle 
to find the opposite way. The court says that's exactly what 15.2 is there for, right? To have this sort of ameliorative program that can help, right, combat existing inequality. And the court might be deferential to the government because there's evidence that that was indeed the intent of the Alberta government in that case, right? There's evidence that the government put in place a commission to evaluate things, right, when it found that, right, um, um, the Métis people would be included under that constitutional recognition and wanted to remedy that historical wrong. The court says very strongly that 15.2 is there for that purpose. So 15.2 is there um, for the government to be able to pass laws without, quote, being paralyzed. It's a very strong word there by the necessity to assist all and to tailor program in a way that will enhance the benefits they confer while ensuring that it's protected against the charge of discrimination. And the government says very strongly, right, that that would be, um, that that would be prohibitive. That if we prevented the government from passing such discriminatory programs, then the government wouldn't pass any, right? So to say that the government isn't helping group B because it's helping group A would be prohibitive, would prevent the government from helping group A or B, and therefore that's something that we want to allow. And the court says very specifically that that is true even when the included and excluded groups share a similar history of disadvantage and marginalization. In other words, right, you might have people who are in a similar situation. If you pass a law to help one group of people, that's plenty. Take a further step back here. The significant distinction is that the government is not doing something that is neutral. So you'll recall last week, um, one of the issues was that the government generally couldn't have a program that applies to everybody where someone is excluded by purpose, by design, by the face of the law, or by its effect. And that's because, right, that is discrimination the exclusion or the inclusion in a facially neutral way that does not take into account historical disadvantage is discrimination. Here, it's different because the group of people is more tailored, right? So the government's not saying we provide assistance to everybody except the Métis people. Government says we provide assistance, in that case we provide specific benefits having to do with settlements in land, only to the Métis people. So, court, right, again is going to say that test, so first, 15-1. First, there is an adverse distinction. Distinction that offends 15.1, a distinction that is discriminatory. Second, the government's going to have to show an ameliorative purpose 
and third right the, we'll, we'll, we won't um, mention it in exactly the same words but the government has to show that the program has been reasonably tailored to achieve that goal that it is minimally impairing right I think that's a clearer way to put it right um, so the government has to show an ameliorative purpose again as we said right we don't look into whether that's correct or not so the court is is not going to first assume that what the government says is true that is too low of a bar the court right doesn't just assume that because the government says it's trying to do something good that it indeed is however the court as we said doesn't either right look at whether there's proof of it so it doesn't look at whether in that case right there is evidence that having that law right Métis Settlement Act or whatever it's called is indeed going to have an impact on the historical disadvantage of Métis people namely by giving them land and self-governance in a way that remedies their lack thereof so there is going to have to be though a a sensical link between the two so there is going to have to be a demonstration that it makes sense basically right it makes sense that what the government is using as a means to achieve the purpose can be a way to achieve that purpose and then right the government has to tailor it in other words once the government has established that purpose right then the government is only going to be allowed to do what is appropriate to achieve that purpose so in other words right the government can't use that as an excuse to do too much or to do things that are unrelated to the purpose right of having an ameliorative um, impact on the situation of traditionally disadvantaged group whatever is beyond that scope is going to be struck down by the courts and in the purpose right we also look at basically um, disadvantage and that's not really a um, separate um, it's not really a separate requirement really it's um, kind of obvious as a result of that right so um, it, to show that um, the that the program has an ameliorative purpose we're going to look at what the historical disadvantage of the program is going to remedy is right and how they are related right so for it to have an ameliorative purpose it has to have right a link with that historical disadvantage namely because it tries to remedy or alleviate it that's what the court says right so on that last step there the court says um, that 15.2 protects all distinctions drawn on enumerated or analogous grounds that serve and are necessary to the ameliorative purpose to the extent justified by the object of the program
and the court rejects the other constitutional arguments pursuant to um, the other provisions, right? Not important for our purposes. Basically, the court says there's no evidence to support these other claims based on the right to liberty and freedom of association. So we'll just go through the case now in a bit more detail with specific um, page references there. Um, the court looks at the law um, at the very beginning of the case, right? Um, frames what the claimants there are, um, are asking for. Then you have the judicial history, right? 676 um, and 77. The court explains what I said on that distinct identity, which was hard to recognize by virtue of the fact that they were considered, right, non, not as legitimate as groups who were traditionally recognized as, quote, Indians um, under federal law. Specifically, paragraph 7, that's where you're explaining this, um, this distinction there. Um, not that important, but really, right, they were given certain rights, but were not given correlative land and other privileges, which made it such that, right, it was harder for them to have self-governance and to have access to the same rights, which were ostensibly recognized by Section 35 of the Constitution. And the act, the, the, the Métis-Spenneran Act there, right, tries to, um, to achieve that um, by, um, by, by basically giving them right, the land that they were not um, given contrary to some other indigenous groups. Uh, paragraph 23 is where you mentioned specifically what I said. So it operates not just in uh, one way. It operates not just to prevent someone from registering under the new act, right, if they're a registered, quote, Indian. It also works the other way. So you lose whatever status you're given, specifically having to do with the settlement, right, if you do end up eventually registering under the Indian Act. Uh, paragraph 24, you also have a very brief discussion of what I said about um, the, the amount of blood that's considered legitimate or that was considered legitimate under the Indian Act, right? So uh, when and where, right, we consider that people lose their status as legal Indians by virtue of having mixed too much with settlers. And the court really doesn't develop the framework much, right? So the cap case, which we read, really established that test, right? So the cap case established that 15-2 is independent. Prior to that, the court didn't know that. So, um, or hadn't decided that because the court is what made it true, right? So initially had 15-1, which prevented discrimination. And 15-2 says, this is not to prevent ameliorative programs. So initially, right, wasn't clear whether 15.2 was an interpretive aid. So whether 15.2 was a way to say there is no discrimination if it does something good.
In other words, there is no discrimination under 15.1 if it does something good. And generally that would have meant that it's one of the things you consider. The other things you consider being what makes distinction discriminatory. So as I said, right, human dignity, historical disadvantage, stereotypes, and so forth. The court right, would have considered that as part of the factors. However, it's, if it's separate, then it's separate. So it's not that 15.2 says there's no discrimination if it does something good. Instead, 15.2 saves a law that is otherwise discriminatory. So there is discrimination. However, we do save the law because it does something good. And therefore, pursuant to 15.2, we have a separate analysis. We have an analysis that only looks at that, doesn't weigh that with other factors like historical disadvantage and so forth. We have only that as a relevant factor. That is the framework that was developed in the CAP case. The CAP case, which you should have read paragraphs of again for today, right? 15.2 should be pretty clear by now because we spent quite a bit of time on it, right? Hopefully 15.1 as well. 15.1 is a bit more complicated jurisprudentially in terms of right, contextual factors um, where um, the test rate needs to be applied to assess discrimination, but where there's no hard and fast rules to what you look at. Instead, you have to consider contextual factors. 15.2 is somewhat simpler, has a framework that should be clear by now. That framework isn't developed that much there. The CAP case was significant because the CAP case developed that framework and established that 15.2 is separate. So said 15.2 has its own separate analysis. That wasn't true before the CAP case. And here's the analysis is what the court said. That is not developed that much in the Cunningham case. Obviously, right, it's fleshed out, it's applied, it's easier to see how it works. That's helpful and significant for um, presidential value but that didn't change right, the nature or steps of the test in a significant way. Then quite interestingly, um, paragraph 32, you might say um, that the court is being pretty deferential because um, the, 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 there's an argument that's made right, that there's no evidence that settlements were being um, overrun by status Indians or um, that um, the number of status Indians seeking settlement uh, membership would impair the aims of um, the MSAs. That's basically um, the determination of the Court of Appeal there, which found the other way the Supreme Court. So the Court of Appeal said, right, it is not, right, uh, sorry, it is not saved under 15.2 because it is discriminatory and not in a way that's allowable. And in doing that, the Alberta Court of Appeals said there's no evidence there that the reason why we exclude people from seeking membership under both laws is correct. So you might say there that the court gives deference to the government, or you might say, pursuant to what I said, that evidence is not the standard, right? that it just has to be rationally connected and how you interpret that, whether you interpret it as actual evidence or whether you interpret it as the government just, right, stated that there was a concern and used that as justification, it's gonna depend, that's gonna, right, determine whether you consider that the court was 
unduly deferential to the government, or the court just applied the standard and evidence in that sense was never necessary. And the Alberta Court of Appeal 33 says, quite interestingly, right, um, that that is a way to affect our human dignity. So obviously, has to find that there's a distinction that's discriminatory, says, right, that the law stereotypes people like the claimants who registered under the Indian Act and therefore lost benefits for medical reasons, right, is being less Métis because of the registration under the Indian Act in a way that did not correspond to their actual circumstances, namely because they're not really different from the people on the settlement, right? And therefore, they're vulnerable to both a unique disadvantage and to stereotyping resulting in differential treatment and discrimination. And that's all really brushed off pretty quick by the Supreme Court, you might say, right? Might agree, disagree, the exercise in itself here is valuable, right? It's all brushed off the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says it has an ameliorative purpose. That's obvious. We all agree, all nine of us, or eight, whatever it is, right, um, in that specific case, we all agree on that. The government said it. It's true. There's no doubt. We all agree on that. And that specific issue there, that disagreement with the Court of Appeal is not really, right, explained away as much as it's just, right, ignored or at least not addressed specifically in the reasons of the Supreme Court. And they seem to be issues that might have been worth addressing. <coughs> Sorry. Then the, the Court of Appeal had to do Section 1 analysis, so you'll recall, right, once that's done, it's not something that we look at in this course in great detail, but once that's all done, you have to consider Section 1. So Section 1 says, even though there is discrimination, impermissible discrimination, right, Section 1 allows the government in some situation to infringe upon discrimination and other constitutional rights, Basically, either, as we said um, in an earlier um, non-recorded um, portion, right, non-pre-recorded portion, to either balance constitutional rights, to balance competing interests, because oftentimes, right, someone protecting someone's constitutional right is going to infringe on someone's other constitutional right, and therefore there's no way for the Constitution to be fully respected because it's contradictory there, right? Doing it for one person prevents you from doing it for another person. It's one of the things Section 1 is there for, a balancing of constitutional rights. Second, right, Section 1 allows for reasonable limits. So even when there's no two rights involved, Section 1 says the government can limit constitutional rights, right, where it does so in a way that's either necessary or, right, um, achieves a certain purpose and the government's considered, right, minimal impairment. So the government has tried to, right, limit the extent to which that infringement happens. Um, so paragraph 38 and following, um, right, is where you have the discussion of the purpose of 15.2. 
And where the, the court says things, right, so you, I, I said the cap case, right, uh, had a framework that was just really applied in the Cunningham case. It was not developed that much, or at least wasn't changed, right? But the court does say things that are more, that are stronger there. And they're, they're the things I mentioned earlier, this paragraph 41 and following, right? Basically says, right, um, that the purpose is to save ameliorative programs from the charge of reverse discrimination. And we'll look at that in the next capsule on um, the United States case, right, which deals with a very similar issue. So reverse discrimination is, right, treating people unequally to remedy historical wrongs, right? So if we say a person gets, right, either a specific benefit, right, a specific government program, well, that is not equal treatment because other people didn't get that government program. Similarly, if we say someone is advantaged in some way, right, so if we say someone, right, um, gets um, a, 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 an evaluation of their circumstances more broadly, right? So including whatever historical disadvantage they face, for instance, in, right, um, in university admissions, right? If we consider how, right, a person's test scores might not be representative of their actual merit because perhaps they faced various barriers in life and therefore it's harder for them to achieve a certain test score. That, by some, is considered reverse discrimination. It's considered discriminating against these other people, generally Caucasian people, right, to remedy historical discrimination and therefore it's not allowable. And specifically, the court recognizes paragraph 50, 41, the purpose of 15.2 is to save, it's a very strong word again, ameliorative programs from the charge of reverse discrimination. Court goes further, right? Because the government did that and we didn't like it. At the time the charter was being drafted, 82, right? Affirmative action programs, not just reverse discrimination, specifically having to do with affirmative action, which is, right, holistic view of um, a person which seeks to also remedy historical disadvantage. Affirmative action programs were being challenged in the United States as discriminatory, a phenomenon sometimes called reverse discrimination. And therefore, 15.2 says, yeah, that's not our thing in Canada. And if there was any lack of certainty based on 15.1 that we have a discrimination protection that we don't want to be used by Caucasian people to do that, we'll put 15.2 in there that says it explicitly. Supreme Court recognizes that there. Section 15.2 is what I said earlier. Affirms that governments, um, and I'm still paragraph 41, may not be able to help all members of a disadvantaged group at the same time and should be permitted to set priorities. If governments are obliged to benefit all disadvantaged people equally, they may be precluded, they won't do it, right, from using targeted programs to achieve specific goals relating to specific group. The cost of identical treatment for all would be loss of real opportunity to lessen disadvantage and prejudice. Again, very strong language, very clear um, as to the direction it's to be taken in future cases on the interpretation of 15.2, right? You might even say there's 
kind of fear or reactionary um, treatment there. Right? Supreme Court really doesn't want that thing it's afraid of from the United States to happen in Canada. Um, 42 and following is where the, the framework um, under CAP is reiterated, right? So I won't um, go over it again. Um, it's basically what I laid out there. Um, the limitation 46, right? Law has to be tailored. So we're protected from, right, a challenge to a law that does something good, a challenge based on the fact that it's discriminatory to someone else, only to the extent that, right, that discrimination or distinction is necessary to achieve or to further the ameliorative purpose. Fifty-five is where um, the court says, basically, um, what I said earlier that the the, the, um, the distinction is not. Um, sorry, uh, fifty-three and following, including fifty-five, is where the Supreme Court says, right, that it it's not recognized. Uh, not being able to get benefits under the Indian Act is not recognized as um, an analogous ground independently of the case for future presidential value. Instead, it's something that the court did not and did not need to decide upon because it wasn't contested and it was a conclusion of one of the courts below. And so the takeaway of this case is um, regarding 15.2. It's not regarding whether status under the Indian Act is an analogous ground within the meaning of right the, the list that's under one and two. Um, also 57 and 58. And of course, there's something interesting here, paragraph 61. Defining the objective of the ameliorative program too broadly or too narrowly will skew the analysis. It's very interesting. So obviously, right, oftentimes there's ways to look at things that are different. So here, if the, the court said, right, we're providing, I won't repeat it again entirely, but if the court had found, right, that you were giving Métis people away by taking something else away under the Indian Act, it likely wouldn't have been permissible. Instead, the court's analysis is that you're just giving them something and that what they're losing is not really relevant, right? And therefore, right, they have something to gain in the same way as if they didn't lose anything. Because generally, if you lose something, it's likely to be discriminatory. And the court says something similar here about the objective. The way you frame things and see things often has an impact on the analysis for obvious reasons. So here, if you frame the objective of a law, for instance, remedy historical disadvantage of poor people too broadly, it's broad, 
then, right, you might allow lots of things to the government and probably too many because again, these things conceptually are discriminatory things that might otherwise be illegal. In fact, that generally are almost always otherwise illegal. And therefore, right, if you frame it too broadly, you might allow too much discrimination in a way that does not further substantive equality. Conversely, if you frame it too narrowly, you might unduly limit the government in the ways in which it can achieve that 15-2 purpose of ameliorating the situation of various groups of people. And quite interestingly, right, that exclusion is framed as achieving the purpose of the law. So here, right, the reason why we don't want, you'll recall I said the Court of Appeals said there is no evidence of that. The reason we don't want, right, according to the Supreme Court and the Alberta government, whose position is accepted by the Supreme Court, the reason we don't want people to have benefits under both laws is because we want to have settlements for Métis people. And therefore, right, to the extent that non-Métis people are there, other Indians under the Indian Act, that prevents the way, that prevents the, the opportunity of the Métis people to have their settlement because there's strangers, non-Métis people on there, that, that ostensibly, according to the government and the Supreme Court, prevents them from being able to have that cohesive identity that they've been prevented for have, from having for 200 years, and also the right to self-governance essentially for the same reasons. Uh, 68 and following is where the Supreme Court goes over that um, legislative history, basically to show that there is evidence that the government indeed was trying to have a positive purpose. And that's not really necessary. It's not part of the test, right? This doesn't say you look at the debates at the Alberta legislature to look at whether what they're saying is true. It doesn't say you look at whether a commission was put in place before. But that is used here, perhaps rhetorically by the Supreme Court, um, to support its position, even though it's not you know, really anywhere in the legal test. The, the paragraph 70, quite interestingly, is where um, the, the identity of the Métis people is really emphasized by the Supreme Court. And the concern that it prevents them from having that identity by cutting these benefits is really explained away um, relatively uh, briefly. And the distinction there, for these reasons, it's not just right, a distinction that might be arbitrary, discriminatory. It's one according to the Supreme Court that's necessary because that law creates a settlement for Métis people to be part of their own group. And therefore, that exclusion of others by that, 
strong measure of preventing people from registering as Indians and under the law is necessary to achieve that purpose. And um, paragraph 74 is where you have right um, the test there. Um, what the Supreme Court says, it has to be rational. So the, the law has to be a rational way for the government to achieve its stated purpose. I said it has to make sense. That's basically what rational means. Quite interestingly, the court paragraph 80, paragraph sorry, 85 and following really brushes away that concern of multiple identities, which is important because really we do have multiple identities, right? We, you don't have black people or Caucasian people. Oftentimes people have more complex and nuanced identities. And on top of that, people are often victim or right, um, subject to discrimination based on intersecting and cumulative grounds. Right? A black woman, for instance, might be subject to discrimination based on gender and race. The Supreme Court here really brushes that away in, for that, um, for that Indian, non-Indian distinction, right? People might have an identity as Métis people, but also Indians, right? Pursuant to the Indian Act. The court says really, right, that, um, that um, both recognizes that, quote, mixed identity is a recurring theme in Canada's ongoing exercise of achieving reconciliation between its Aboriginal peoples and the broader population, really brushes it away in that sense, right, in, in the sense of right, needing to keep strangers away to have that cohesive identity within the settlement. And um, ultimately, the very end of the case, we'll close on that. Court dismisses these other constitutional arguments under other sections in Section 15 for which insufficient or no evidence was provided.